It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. You are listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast, and this is our review of Dunkirk. What has happened is a colossal military disaster. We shall go on to the end. We shall never surrender. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. One of ours. He's on me. I'm on him. All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for Dunkirk, and the story for Dunkirk is as follows. Warning, spoiler alert. In May 1940, Germany advanced into France, trapping Allied troops on the beaches of Dunkirk. Under air and ground cover from British and French forces, troops were slowly and methodically evacuated from the beach using every serviceable naval and civilian vessel that could be found. At the end of this heroic mission, 330,000 French, British, Belgian, and Dutch soldiers were safely evacuated. Hence the spoiler alert. Uh, it is starring Fionn Whitehead, Tom Glynn Carney, Jack Loden, Harry Styles, Anurin Bernard, James Diacre, Barry Keoghan, Kenneth Branagh, Killian Murphy, Mark Rylance, and Bane, a.k.a. Tom Hardy. It is written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Joining me for this review, we have Next Best Picture's own Mike Vermet. What up, everybody? And joining us as a guest for this review, we also have Andrew Carden from theawardsconnection.com. And you might have also have seen him over at goldderby.com as well. Andrew, how are you? I am great. How are you, Matt? Uh, we are um, we're, we're doing pretty okay over here, all things considered. Uh, we are right now thick in the middle of uh, Game of Thrones season. We've got Oscar season clearly starting to come to a head here right now with this and Detroit releasing in a couple of days, uh, Wind River also. Um, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff on the horizon. So it's been a lot of fun. So we really appreciate having you on. I'm going to just come right out and say it first of all here i want to just set the stage so to speak this film is written and directed by christopher nolan and christopher nolan's name brings about it a lot of controversy i guess you could say and a lot of that sometimes i feel like has to do with the fact that here's this 
indie director who started off very phenomenally with a brilliant movie in Memento. Uh, he makes Insomnia. Next thing you know, he gets the keys to the kingdom. He's given the Batman property. He becomes known as this blockbuster mainstream director who brings an artistic sensibility to the films that he creates. He's got a tremendous amount of detractors out there, though, with the way in which he utilizes his expositionary dialogue, the way that he uh, does not really write female characters all that well. And so people have kind of been hoping for a little bit of a break with Nolan. Uh, They're looking for something different, I guess you could say. You know, when we got like Inception, The Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, it seemed like Nolan was just going bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then with Interstellar, I I mean, like, listen, I don't care what anybody says out there. I think Interstellar is an ambitious film that is a misfire in a lot of different areas, mostly though, unfortunately. And how he handles the characters in that screenplay. Like, the concept is good, but the characters, eh. So I feel like with this movie, he just said, fuck the characters, screw all of that. I am just going to show you guys simply the event itself, the historical event known as Dunkirk. Before I give my thoughts on the matter, Andrew, you are the guest on this show. Why don't you tell us your thoughts on Mr. Christopher Nolan and how did you like Dunkirk? Well, I thought it was uh, a terrific film. Um, I really don't have a whole lot of bad to say about it, other than I wouldn't quite rank it as my favorite Christopher Nolan film. Um, I think from a technical perspective, it is magnificent. The cinematography is gorgeous. The film editing is pitch perfect. The sound is particularly impressive. And while it isn't necessarily a character study, for sure, um, there are, you know, a handful of really great, convincing performances here. Um, I actually found Mark Rylance um, a lot more interesting in this film than in The Bridge of Spies, for which he, of course, won the Oscar. Um, And uh, Mr. Whitehead is quite a find. He's a a very engaging screen presence. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is great, too. Um, You know, I mean, it's an all around terrific film um, that I wouldn't quite rank among necessarily the all time great war films. Um, But it's certainly, you know, particularly uh, on the technical side of things, you know, um, so commendable. And I think at least in those categories, cinematography, the sound categories, uh, perhaps film editing as well, will be uh, an award season contender uh, later this year. Now, you say it's not your favorite Christopher Nolan film, but would you say it's his best directed film? Um, in the way that he orchestrates everything, I think it's I think it's a close call between this and uh, The Dark Knight. Um, both films have incredible, memorable, very well orchestrated and choreographed sequences. They're chock full of them. Um, and I actually have a really soft spot for uh, Insomnia as well. Um, my top three would actually go in order, The Dark Knight, Insomnia, Dunkirk. Um, but, you know, a, a, from a purely technical pers- perspective, I think it probably is his most um, extraordinary endeavor. Um, and it's certainly a more satisfying picture than Interstellar, which just kind of left me restless at the end of it. Yeah, I've gone back and I've rewatched Interstellar a couple times, hoping that somewhere I'll find something new to appreciate and... 
I actually end up disliking the movie more and more every time I revisit it. So, all right, Mike Vermette, Dunkirk. What do you so, think? So, Dunkirk, yeah. So it's a masterpiece in the sense of, like you guys said, visually, um, from an audio standpoint, it is an absolute masterpiece. I don't think there are very many films that look this good or sound this good. Um, but, because I know you guys loved it, you know, unconventionally, um, I was left a little cold on this movie just because there is zero in the way of, like, characters or character development. Um, there's no real plot outside of these guys are trying to get home back to England. Um, also, you know, there's no, like, character development at all. There's barely much dialogue in the movie. Um, so I loved watching it, and I loved sitting and kind of absorbing myself into the world, and I definitely was able to do that. But just from, like, a moviegoer, like, I want to get into this story, there is no story. Um, I think there is an amazing acting in the film, definitely amazing performances. Um, you know, I still am not sure who Harry Styles is. I heard a lot on Twitter that I was going to be blown away by him, but I couldn't really figure out who he was. But having said that, again, you know, I think it looks amazing. It sounds amazing. That score by Hans Zimmer is incredible. Yeah. Um, I actually want to go pick that, like, soundtrack up. That's how good it is. Oh, it's available right now digitally. Um, I've been listening to it on my uh, commute today. <laughs> It's, That's awesome. I got to check Apple Music and see if it's on there. It, it's the kind of music that w- while you're listening to it, your whole life just feels so intense. Yeah, it was intense <laughs> watching it. Like sitting there, I was actually like really sunk into my chair. Like, my God, this is crazy. And I didn't see it in IMAX. And I actually want to go buy an IMAX ticket because of how incredible and visually it sounded amazing just in the regular 70 millimeter that I saw it in. Yeah. Um, so I did see it in IMAX 70 millimeter, and I haven't seen an IMAX film, a, a true IMAX film, might I add, since The Dark Knight back in 2008. So it's been so long for me that when I did see the film and I saw how big the screen was, I was like, whoa, I I don't know if I'm ready for this. And then the movie starts, the sound kicks in, and it's like, whoa, again. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, this is insane. My focal point was directly in the screen. It filled up my entire peripheral vision. For context, I was in the fourth row. And this might just be the loudest movie I've ever sat through my entire mm-hmm. life. It is loud. It is a very loud film. And so... A couple of things here, because I, and I might go off on a few tangents as I go through this. This is a very immersive film. It's meant to be immersive. You know, we've talked about how directors tend to use their filmmaking craft before to truly put you into the film and really give you the full experience. Nolan does that here with the 70 millimeter IMAX format. He's able to truly, truly, truly capture the epic scale of this event all within camera with no CGI. That's the other thing that really like blows my mind about this movie too, is how much of it he truly wanted to capture in camera. Now I know there's a misgiving here in regards to the scale in terms of like the amount of extras, the amount of people. I mean, he got a lot of people for some of these scenes, like some of the crowd scenes. I was like, that's a, that's a ton of people. 
you know, and just to organize that and orchestrate getting everybody to do everything that they needed to do for the shot is simply insane. With that said, the real event itself had a lot more people. I mean, you watch these scenes and there's a couple hundred people, but it's not 300,000, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. And I, that's like one thing I will say is that I, I you know, and, and I have some flaws here and there. And that is one where I felt maybe a little bit of CGI to make the crowds, you know, seem like there was more people could have helped benefit the film even more so. Because what Nolan does here is he's trying to capture the enormity and he's also trying to get that personal ground level perspective also too from the from the air and from the sea as well. It's three different timelines, all of them uh, cross-cutting with each other. And by, when I say timelines, I'm talking like the beach story takes place over the course of a week, the sea story takes place over the course of a day, and the aerial story is over the course of one hour. But yet Lee Smith, the editor on this movie, he cuts between the three and they intersect at one point near the end of the film and it's just masterful how it all comes together, the tension, the flow, the intensity of this movie is just immaculate in every, every sense of the word. So on a technical level, and we'll get into more of the technical stuff here, this movie is truly incredible. Now, conventionally speaking, though, when you're making a war film, most people are expecting your Hacksaw Ridge, your Saving Private Ryans, your um, platoons. They're expecting there to be character arcs. They're expecting there to be a story, a mission, so to speak. Have a scene where the soldiers talk about their lives back at home so that we can empathize with them and we really root for them to get back home. There's none of that here. Absolutely none of it. And it's so unconventional and something so unexpected that for me, somebody who is used to genre convention, is used to the fundamental rules of storytelling and screenwriting, to see Nolan take this big of a risk in the way that he told this story is unlike any other war film I have ever seen before. I think the closest thing that comes even remotely near it might be Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. So mm-hmm. with that said, it's for me, it's, it's one of the most memorable films I've ever seen because I've quite frankly, I've never seen anything like it. So this is going to sound kind of crazy, but um, since seeing it yesterday, I've actually been thinking um, that the closest film it reminds me of is actually Michael Shimino's Heaven's Gate, which was, of course, uh, a massive flop when it came out. Um, if it came out today, I suspect it'd be more warmly received um, and probably not taken down a studio. But I say that because um, these are two films where the focus is so much on the technical uh, scale of it. Uh, a grand sweeping uh, picture um, with just gorgeous cinematography, all of the effort gone into the, the sound and the film editing. And then you have about 20 characters. Well, in this case, it's a little bit less. We have an array of characters, none of who get that much character development. I know we might as well not even call them characters. They're 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 more like uh, twenty points of view. Right, right. I don't think they have names. Any of them? Uh, no, yeah. so, no. I don't think they do either. I mean, and one other thing too, you were just saying, and like, both of you have commented like on the sound in this movie. Uh, the dialogue is hard to make out in this movie. Yeah, like really, really hard to make and out. And Tom Hardy sounds like Bane. 
I mean, yeah. come on. Oh, I'm yeah, waiting yeah, for him yeah. to say the fire rises. <laughs> <laughs> Is the fire rising in your cockpit? <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and Andrew, I'll let you get back to your point, but I want to just say uh, two things about the sound because we, we saw this happen with Interstellar where the sound was so loud that it overpowered the dialogue at times. Mm-hmm. Where in Interstellar, I felt like that stylistic choice did not work. Here, I felt I felt it was more appropriate because it is a war film. Gunshots are loud. Everything that's happening around you is chaotic and messy and loud. It would And, and since there is no quote-unquote story other than the event itself we don't really need to necessarily make out all the dialogue to truly understand what is happening within the scene so it didn't bother me as much this time around uh with that said if no one ever does go back to like a small scale film like an insomnia or memento and doesn't have this like kind of chaos and large scale attributed to his film and the sound is still mixed away that he's mixed it over the last two films that he's done uh, I think we're going to have to start considering that no one's got a hearing problem, you know? <laughs> so anyway, I just want to, like I said, I'm going to go off on lots and lots of tangents on this episode because there's so much to talk about. I apologize, Andrew, finish your thought. No, I was just going to say that, you know, the problem that folks had with Heaven's Gate when it was released was that they just couldn't get emotionally invested in any of the characters because um, there were just so many of them and they just weren't very well defined. And that three-hour movie too. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, if if Dunkirk were a three-hour picture, I think that the reception may not be quite as glowing, and it probably wouldn't be as partially successful. Um, But you know, in terms of a comparison, I agree that the Thin Red Line is a good comparison as well. Um, But you know, Heaven's Gate, you know, stuck out just because it is so impressive and immersive from a technical perspective. But on the page, in terms of character development, there's not a whole lot of there there. Um, And I think this film is able to transcend that flaw a lot better than Heaven's Gate was, and no doubt because it's half the running time that Heaven's Gate was. Yeah, this is Nolan's shortest film since, like, I think maybe following is shorter, and that's, like, it? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that's insane when you really think about it. It's short, and it feels short, too, because you're really invested, like, in the movie itself. So when you sit there, you kind of blink, and it's all over. I don't think so. I think that the film is at a perfect length because the film gets going right away, right from the very first shot to the very first scene. No, I wouldn't want it longer. I think it's at a perfect length. I'm just saying it is a quick ride. Like, you're in and you're out, and it feels awesome. Like, I'm happy. You know, there's no dead spots. There's no plots. I'm like, all right, let's go. No, and I think that if he did choose to uh, give these points of views, <laughs> it's so weird referring to him as that, if he actually decided to transform them into characters um, and actually give them backstories and, and more of personality, uh, this film would be three hours long. And I don't think this film could sustain being three hours long. I can't imagine that studio would even greenlight that kind of picture. Oh, they'll give him anything he wants, honestly. Um, he's got carte blanche with any stu- well, with Warner Brothers at least. I, I the think. fact that this got made is beyond me. Like that, he was able to pitch a war movie with you know basically zero characters in it, and just the biggest scale possible is you know means Warner Brothers will let him do anything. Yeah, basically. I mean, he got real ships, real planes, real people for the you know like I said for like the crowd scenes. It's just like 
it boggles my mind that this man does not have a Best Director Oscar nomination. And if they're not going to give it to him for this, I, I, I don't think he'll ever get one then. Because I can't see how the Academy would not go for something like this. This is like right up their wheelhouse in terms of what they normally do go for. But, Michael, to your point, it may leave people feeling cold. On an emotional level. Yeah, I felt like there were people in my theater that were complaining after it was over. I was talking to a couple people as I was walking out, say that they didn't expect it to be like this. They just expected, like, they knew the name Christopher Nolan, and they expected something more along the lines of an Inception or a Dark Knight or something like that, um, where it is like a kind of a heavy character study. And they were like, you know, kind of confused as to what they, they paid an extra ticket price for a 70 millimeter, like what it was. See now, I, I I looked at it as like this is this, you know this reminded me of like watching Gravity, technical Marvel. I love Gravity. Really, really immersed me within the film. Light on character, except for out. I mean, well, Sandra Bullock More has character than this movie. Yes, but you know, very stripped down, very basic in terms of its story. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It wasn't like a mind bender like Inception or Memento or anything like that. And so I just, it's interesting because like when I walked out of the film, I had to actually ask myself, did I, did I absolutely love that movie or are my expectations getting in the way? You know what I'm saying? And I had to take a step back and ask myself objectively, was that a well-made film? And the answer is, yeah, Hoyt Van Hoytema's cinematography is incredible in this movie. I mean, and the fact that it's all shot on film in this world of digital, come on. Stunning. The editing alone, I, I couldn't get over the editing in that movie. There are certain scenes where literally, like, you think you're in one, you know, part of the movie. You know, the air, the ground, or the beach. The air, the water, or the beach. And you're in a different part of the movie all of a sudden but it just works so seamlessly it's amazing you know lee smith did not get an oscar nomination for inception that's crazy too the and it's like when i look at this film and i look at those timelines and i look at how they cross cut between each other back and forth uh one minute you have killian murphy who's on the ship with uh, with Mark Rylance and the two young boys and, you know, clearly he's shell-shocked and he's going through a really difficult time. Cut to the next scene and the scene's taking place at night and there's Killian Murphy, perfectly okay, ordering men on the boat and everything and it's like, uh, uh, wait, what? And you just, you realize that these are just on different timelines and the fact that the film can do that is such an interesting non-linear uh, storytelling device that we've seen Nolan use before in his other films and it's the thing that actually it's my favorite aspect about him I, I love that he uses non-linear structure to tell his films I think it's such a unique form of storytelling and I thought it worked perfectly here in terms of Really, really, really seeing those different viewpoints of the scale of the evacuation and what it all was ultimately. It didn't. I think it's its biggest, um, you know, its best aspect is that this film encourages the second viewing because now that you know what happens and now that you know kind of what's the air, what's the sea, what's the ground. It'd be interesting to, like, see that again. I feel like it would give a lot more payoff seeing it a second time because you kind of know where – what's happening now. 
as opposed to trying to figure everything out. And there are little things that do happen within the scenes that make them compelling within their own right. Um, for example, you have Tom Hardy and his uh, his wingman buddy. I, I mean, like I don't know the characters' names, but. You just have this whole story about them just watching each other's backs in the air. And then when his buddy goes down in the water and Tom Hardy's still trying to watch his back and, you know, things are just perilous the whole way through and you don't know whether one or the other is going to make it. Like that's its own contained personal story for those two men within itself. You know what I mean? Um the men on the beach have their own stories of trying to get the sick off and hopefully buy themselves a ride along with that. And that doesn't work out. And they're hiding out on this boat and they think one of the guys is a spy that's with them. And it's like, there, there are some really, really, really compelling scenes that actually um, make sense and are, you know, they don't feel out of place and it doesn't feel like we're just watching chaotic randomness, if that makes sense. I, I, I definitely feel like there was a purpose to all the scenes that we did see within this film. Uh, the question I have uh, for, the, for the both of you is which timeline did you guys enjoy the most? Did you guys enjoy the land, the sea or the air the most? Well, I think that the land is technically um – the best orchestrated um, from a technical perspective. Um, but I actually, my heart was really with the stuff at sea with Mark Rylance, um, which surprised me just because I was so underwhelmed by him in Bridge of Spies. Um, I thought his stuff with Murphy um, and the two boys was really uh, absorbing and moving. Um, I really could have watched an entire film just based around them and perhaps um, other folks who went out on missions to to rescue folks. Um, I was really moved by that. Um, the land stuff though is incredible. And while I think I'd probably rank the stuff in the air, um, third, um, it's still, you know, incredible. And, um, the editing is excellent and, you know, it's, it's hard to really knock any of them. It's just, you know, all around terrific. And they really did a terrific job in, I think this film is so much more accessible than something like Interstellar, even though it is nonlinear. Whereas in Interstellar, a lot of folks in the audience kind of felt lost at sea after a while. I think this is still fairly easy to follow, even though it follows a nonlinear course. You know, it's funny because you're saying Interstellar is like kind of frustrating in many ways. And when you said that statement, I, you know, because I've seen the film so many times trying to get over that, that frustration. For me, the frustration in that it stems from the characters and the decisions that they make. And how poorly written the characters are compared to the concept of the film, which is absolutely incredible. With this film, like I was saying before, it, it seems like there was almost like, like a conscious decision for Nolan to kind of fire back at his detractors and focus on his his strengths, which is he really, really, really nails the concepts of his films down so, 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 so well. Um it's, it's lately, you know, with Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar, arguably two of his weakest films, that's really been like the thing that's hurt him the most really is just trying to nail down these characters and write them in a way that appeals to a mass audience while also still trying to stay critically acclaimed with, uh, you know, with the film critics, I suppose, and not write uh, really, truly horrendously bad dialogue, although sometimes he still veers off in that direction, too, you know? So with this film, 
it, it with this film, it's kind of mitigated. It's kind of odd because he's a very good director with actors. He's able to draw very good performances out of oh, the yeah. stars. I mean, um, I mean, obviously Heath Ledger, but also performances like Robin Williams and in Insomnia. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, there's there's so many. And yet he's just not very good at writing the characters. You know, he's a great director with his actors, but his, his actors are somehow able to transcend the weakness of his writing sometimes, which I find interesting. It is definitely. Oh, and you know, I just want to also say too, one other thing to comment off, off of what you said before. And Mike, tell me if you agree or not. I think the most technically impressive uh, part of this film of the three timelines is the aerial dogfight sequences. Absolutely. That's actually, I was going to say my favorite of the three timelines is the aerial stuff. Um, I, I couldn't get over how masterful that was shot and how amazing it is that he used real planes to do that. Yeah. And I felt like whenever they were up in the sky, I was always tense as to what the fuck is going to happen mm-hmm. because something bad is going to happen to these people and that sucks. And they have almost no dialogue between the two of them. Um, but you know, they're kind of like the World War Two version of Maverick and Goose, I guess. So you do root for them. And, like, I think, like, at least in the theater that I saw it, they got the most, like, cheers from the crowd. Like, things that went on in the air and things that, you know, Tom Hardy's character in particular was doing. Um, and you really root for them and you really want them to, like, make it out. And, you know, Tom Hardy's slowly running out of gas as he's flying up there. Um so you're like on the edge of your seat, like what's going to happen to him? How yeah. are you going to get out of this? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I felt like that a couple of times. You know, the imminent fear of death is palpable in this film because there are so many characters that are introduced or points of view rather, and we don't really know so much about them, which also made them by extension expendable. And that had me at such unease throughout the entire runtime of the film, I kept wondering over and over and over because I don't have an emotional attachment to any of these characters. Does that mean that that's a sign that anyone could go at any time? And I think the answer is ultimately yes. And, you know, there's a couple of different things that Nolan does here just in terms of really capturing the sound of an incoming uh, German plane and the roaring, uh, sound that it makes as it's about to drop uh, bombs or shoot at the soldiers on the beach who have literally nowhere to hide. They just got to hope that they don't get hit and it's just random and it's messy. And it leads me to two points here that I want to also point out that are stylistic choices on Nolan's part. And I want to get the both of your thoughts on the matter. One, we never, ever, ever see the enemy which puts us in the point of view of these characters even more so. Any thoughts on that? So I think it's a perfectly, you know, reasonable and, you know, very effective. I think, you know, the fewer characters in a case like this in a film that runs just a tad over 90 minutes, the better. Um, You know, I don't think we need both sides. Um, I I suppose he could have done what uh, Eastwood did back in the day with, you know, Flags of Our Fathers and Islands of Iwo Jima, and done two pictures and shown us the, the Germans. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a pretty effective technique here. And I don't think we're really missing out on a whole lot uh, by not getting the, uh, the enemy's perspective here. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the movie's actually better for not having seen them. 
Um, but I just wanted to point out, like, this is... There's no real blood or anything in the movie or gore. That was the, the second most... point I was going to make, Mike. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's no, the no. Most you, violent you... PG-13 movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I-, I couldn't get over how violent and brutal it was. Is it though? Uh, yeah, people get like burned alive. You don't see them bleed, but like Jesus, they they really burned. See now, I actually feel like I've seen more uh, brutal films than this uh, for a PG-13 rating. Like, um, like, like what? Name one. But that may be because there were more moments of pure manipulation that were thrown at me. And uh, the, uh, the example and the comparison I'm going to use here is the 40-minute um, stunning sequence in Pearl Harbor. Hmm. I felt like that was a Hollywoodized version of what Nolan was going for here, where I, I truly feel like when I watch this movie... Doesn't feel like a Hollywood Amer- uh, well, not American. He's English, but a, but a Hollywood director made this movie. This this feels like a art film that came out of like France. You know what I mean? When I watch this movie, yeah, it's gritty. It's a gritty film. Like it's not. There's no Hollywood gloss all over it. No, not at all. I mean, Hoyt Van Hoytema's uh, cinematography also uh, helps to highlight that too. With the color palette that they choose, um, the fact that the explosions don't have any CGI in them, like these are explosions that you could tell were detonated on set, captured live within camera, and as a result, they look even more just realistic. Um, and oh my god. The fear of drowning in this movie. Whew. Mm. Oh, man. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of war films where, and, and once again, I'll, I'll go back to something like Pearl Harbor, but, I, you know, I was getting like real uh, vibes of something like James Cameron's like Titanic, you know, and the, just a fear of incoming water and water really just building up within the space. And, you know, just one little detail about that too that just like blows my mind. Just, from that perspective is when these uh when these boats come and these men have to get into these boats they have to go below deck to make room for as many men as humanly possible on these ships and to do that you're putting yourself more at risk at the prospect of that ship possibly sinking so even though you're on the ship and you may think I'm going to get out of this okay and everything's going to be fine, there's still that tangible level of fear that is just so, so terrifying. I mean, God, I was so stressed out watching this movie. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> just even thinking about it is freaking me out right now. I, I could never imagine being there, you know? I think the most grueling scene in this film, for me at least, was one very much involving the water without giving away too much, but there's a scene maybe a half hour into the picture where there's quite a few men on board and uh, a ship is torpedoed and a lot of men end up getting stuck. And it's a suffocating scene because um, you feel like you're right in there with them and you feel like you two are trying to figure out, like, where's the door to get out of here? Yeah. Um, I thought that was just like a crazy, I thought that was more intense than any of the, big fiery explosions in the film and you know what also too gets me about a scene like that andrew is that Hans zimmer's score is not the type of score where you're gonna get like orchestral like moody <laughs> uh you know background singing like ah, you know like to really just try and like 
yank at your like heartstrings of emotion. It's none of that. None of that at all. Instead, it's just constant like, God, I, I don't have like the sound effect like ready. I wish I had it like queued up here on my computer or something, but it's just constant ticking. So much ticking. Which I feel like has become like the Nolan style. Like a lot of his movies have that that ticking sound. Like Dark Knight had it, Inception had it. But it's so pronounced in this. It is. He's the ticking director. <laughs> I got the feeling that the ticking sound like and it's the ticking of a clock. Um or or It's or, Nolan's tick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nolan's tick. I got the impression that like that ticking sound lasted from the minute the first uh gunshot went off. I really got the sense that it lasted the whole the whole way through the movie, and I know that's not true, but it, but it really felt like that to me at times. Did anybody else feel that way? I mean, I thought the score was incredible. I do wonder though how it'll play come Oscar time when it's you know stacked up against four presumably traditional scores. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I'm not sure it's going to be everybody's cup of tea. Well, I've been listening to it on uh, on its own as um, as I was saying before, and I have to say it, it's a lot. It's actually better listening to it on its own than seeing it in the movie because there's so much happening in the movie that it's actually hard to even pay attention to the score. But then there are also the moments too, like when the civilian boats do show up, where the score really does become very rousing and and it's not once again it's not like in a very pronounced not very obnoxious kind of a way just the right level just the right amount it's like mark rylance's performance in this you know mark rylance has a moment in this movie where tears well up in his eyes and it's not a quote-unquote oscar scene it's not in my opinion something that's going to bring him back for nomination number two this year but it's something that is still memorable powerful and is all that is needed it's like the bare minimum but it's just the right amount to really really help sell the emotion so like vermet to address like a criticism you said before about how this movie left you feeling cold i think that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to really just look at this on a macro instead of a micro level and truly appreciate the the level of sacrifice that not only the men that were fighting were providing, but also the men and women who um, were just ordinary people who wanted to help, you know, I mean, and that, that really, that really did move me. You know what? I, I think like, this isn't really a criticism, but just something that I think that I couldn't get that connection to it was the fact that it's not based on any one true story. You look at something like Hacksaw Ridge last year and I was really inspired by that story. Um, and like this, there was no real basis. So like I didn't connect to it on that level. Um, and I think that's why I was left maybe a little unfulfilled with it. What about you, Andrew? Did the, uh, did the moments of emotion, even on that macro level, did it did it work for you? Um, again, I found the, the Ryland scenes very moving. Um, I thought he and his sons were, you know, perhaps most absorbing characters, you know, in the film, even if they aren't, I mean, even if Nolan isn't the greatest at character development, um, I wouldn't say this film moved me on the level of say like the deer hunter or coming home or the best years of our lives or films where, uh, the character development is the main focus. Um, but still, I think that, you know, there are moments here that do pull up the heartstrings, but not in a very like overly manipulative way 
Oscar scene kind of way. It's all very understated, which I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. It's all very, it is very understated. Um, and also too, it's not just Rylance that has the emotional beats. Everybody at the end of their arcs here in this film, everybody has an emotional moment by the end. Um, the aerial sequence gets its own powerful emotional moment. And it's also bittersweet too. Uh, Kenneth Bronner has an emotional bittersweet moment as well. Um, and even the soldiers coming home, you know, it's like, oh, my God, they made it like that's incredible. And yet it's bittersweet because they feel like they failed. Like they 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 feel like, why are we being cheered, you know, for losing? You know, the, and it, 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 there was victory in defeat because had they stayed and had they continued the fight, that the whole world would be different as a result of that one battle at Dunkirk. And the fact that they did not uh, stay and the fact that they did leave and that, you know, the war was able to continue on, America was able to get involved and yada, 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 you know, the whole story goes. It, it helped to shape the world ultimately. And I and I just, I, I don't know. I, I mean, for me, I, I, I found the enormity in all of that. And I really, it, it, it hit me by the end. Um, you know what actually ruined it for me, though? One one more nitpick. Can anybody guess what actually ruined uh, the ending for me? The last scene. The very last shot of the movie. Um, I'm I'm one of those people, and can you guys like tell me if you agree or not? The second to last shot should have been the last shot of the film. Yes. Oh. Yes. Yeah. I was I was expecting it to cut to black, and I was like, oh, we're we're still here. And it does cut to black. <laughs> That's the thing that boggles my mind. It had a Return of the King moment. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand that. I really don't. And it's funny because we're talking about Lee Smith and his uh, his work on this film and how he probably maybe will win the Oscar for Best Film Editing. But that moment for me just kind of left me baffled because um, I really thought before that last possible moment, I really truly felt like the movie ended on the perfect note. So. It's a, it's incredibly orchestrated those final few minutes, and then you're so right. I I don't know why they did that. It was it's kind of an awkward cut. Yeah, I mean Nolan's films always end in a very memorable sort of way, but this one for me was just for different reasons. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man. Okay, let's get into um, final thoughts. Great out of ten, and any Oscar potential. Andrew, you are our guest. Take it away. So I'd probably give it um, an eight and a half out of 10. Um, and in terms of Oscar potential, I mean, right now I'm going to predict it for, you know, a bunch of stuff. Um, but who knows how we're going to feel about this, you know, come the winter. It's possible that it'll be somewhat forgotten, especially if we have, you know, one hell of an Oscar season. So while I do have Christopher Nolan in my predictions and have it in for a bunch of technical prizes, it wouldn't shock me if he snubbed yet again, um, honestly. Um, but, you know, if it could potentially be a huge player, and I definitely watch to see if he can manage a screenplay nomination for this. Because no if, way. He, if, if he can, then I suspect it could be in contention for the Best Picture win. Again, I don't even have it in my top 10 for screenplay right now. I'm just saying, if that happens, or if Mark Rylance somehow gets in, I think those are indicators that it really could be a contender for the top prize. This far out, I don't really see it that way, but I do see it as something likely to get uh, a bunch of nominations and probably score, you know, three or so technical prizes. Yeah. Okay. 
Very good. Mike from Matt. First of all, Andrew, I just want to let you know, on the next Best Picture podcast reviews, we do not give halves. <laughs> I was trying to be nice. I, was, I wasn't I was going to say anything. Times. <laughs> all right. Well, now that you brought it up, Mike, now that you brought it up, I, I, all right, Andrew, I'm going to put you on the spot. Eight or a nine? Uh, I'd give it a nine. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, go with, I'll go with a nine because I, I think an eight is too conservative. Um, you know, I don't think it's a perfect picture by any stretch. But it, it's still... It isn't. It's not a 10. <laughs> a nice. It's very solid. Yeah. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> I make I make us choose the hard choice and, and really, really stick and commit to that score. So, <laughs> all right, Mike, take it away again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd also, you know, probably give it an eight and a half. Um, I will go on the conservative side and give it an eight just because I, I do think that there is some... Some screenplay issues, and I, I think for me that really lowers my overall enjoyment of the film because I really could not connect to any of the characters. But they're minor gripes. The film's an absolute masterpiece. It's technically a marvel, and I mean, one that everyone should go check out. Um, as far as Oscar predictions, you know, you can predict it for pretty much everything. I mean, director, editing, um, you know, you name it, it could get nominated for it. The only one, again, like, you know, Neg said, that I really wouldn't want to see it nominated for a screenplay. I mean, it's it's just not there. So I hope it doesn't get nominated for that. Yeah, so Dunkirk, for me, is probably Nolan's best film. I think it's his most mature film. I think it's also maybe not the most entertaining film, obviously. And there are other films that I might consider more personal favorites just from that enjoyment level standpoint. But... As for somebody who wants to watch something that's different and really, really, really immerse themselves within the cinematic experience, this film just completely did it for me. I, I was blown away by this movie, um, especially because I didn't go in with the expectation of knowing any of this. I had no idea that it was going to be what it turned out to be. And once I started to really settle into the groove of it, I, I was just... I was in it the whole entire way. Like I said, though, uh, walking out of it, I did have to kind of check my expectations a little bit and say to myself, okay, like, that was not what I was expecting. Now that I know what it was, and, you know, I mean, true, like, I was in it, you know, I was sweating through it, pretty much. I was, like, leaning in the back of my chair, gripping my uh, armrests. Like, I was, believe me, it was intense. So... Did other aspects of the film work for me? Did everybody give great performances? Yes. Was there a single bad note in any members of the cast? No. Harry Styles, he does he does an admirable job. Everybody does a great job. Everybody's very convincing in their performances within this film. Was the writing bad? I don't know. I couldn't hear it at times. Who cares? Is there really a story? Not really, but it doesn't need to be because there's a grander story being told. There's an event being told. This is like a like a documentary that can be dry, can be a little boring because it's life, you know, and life has a lot of boring bits inside of it. But, you know, if you just drop us within that documentary and all of a sudden it's not talking heads in an interview and you're actually in the freaking real life footage and you're seeing the war as these men may have seen it, 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 it's it's by far the most impressive war film I think I've ever seen since Saving Private Ryan in that regard. Um, 
and it bears a lot of similarities to, once again, Terrence Malick's uh, The Tree of Life in terms of how it's uh, structured, in terms of how it focuses unconventionally on different aspects of filmmaking as opposed to a traditional regular narrative and character. So really, really blown away by this film. I was blown away by all the technical elements, Hoyt Van Hoytema's cinematography, Leif Smith's editing, the sound work on this movie, Hans Zimmer's score. Uh, you know, it's just... Man, this is my this is my favorite film of the year. I really, really, really debated between a nine and a ten. I really did, but I do have a lot of nitpicks to throw at it, and there are some things that are holding me back. So I am going with the nine score on this. As far as the Oscar potential is concerned, though, I have it in currently for best picture, director, cinematography, score, film editing, sound editing, sound mixing, and even though I. I, I, I kind of doubt this one a little bit, but I think it's going to have a lot of love from a lot of the technical branches that will get in. I have it in for visual effects right now at the moment, even though a, a lot of times it's non-existent. This is a very, very low visual effects kind of movie, and the visual effects that may be there are more so to support uh, the story that's being told as opposed to it being the focal point, if anything. Um, I don't see this film getting in for costumes. I don't see it getting in for its art direction. I mean, that would be really impressive if it did get in for art direction now. Um, and a very inspired choice too, might I add, but I don't see that happening. No acting. And you know what? The structure of the nonlinear structure and, you know, the three timelines, it may be a cool concept, but that works because of its editing. So I'm not going to go with the screenplay either in this case. Man, this has been, uh, this has been exhausting just even talking about the film actually, because there's just so much to talk about with it. So we're definitely interested in hearing what you the listeners out there think about the film so by all means please drop us a comment let us know what you thought about dunkirk check out the review on nextbestpicture.com andrew thank you so much for joining us for this review where can they find you on the internet you can find me at theawardsconnection.com and also on occasion on gold derby sounds fantastic mike from where can they find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at vampdt89 and you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture's review of Dunkirk. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, Player FM, CastBox. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We would really, really certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you all next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.